monster. Exactly. That's part two. We'll leave it right there for now. Thank you for taking the time out. Be safe. We will be back. some gravy in your ear. This is Wavy Gravy, uh, Temple of Accumulated Air and Voice of Woodstock, telling you you are listening to KBOO Portland at 90.7 FM. The 90s are the 60s. Standing on your head. Yow! KBOO is proud to co-sponsor the return of Portland Folk Music Society concerts with artists who tour nationally. The series continues this month on Saturday, April 16th with guitarist Pat Donahue. Folk Music Series has one show every month through June. The concerts will be at the Reedwood Friends Church on Southeast Steel Street in Portland. For information, go to kboo.fm and click on Community Events. Good day and welcome to The Bike Show. My name is Alon Rob. Co-host Nedra Deadweiler has been cycling and racing in Sierra Leone and will be back next month with some interviews and stories about her adventures. Last month, we spoke with several of the activists that helped make Portland the cycling city that it is. Today, we are happy to have two more riders whose work benefits all Portland cyclists, aids in the fight for climate sanity and survival, two activists who bring to their work knowledge, wisdom, and a sense of joy. In the first half of the show, our guest will be Andre Lightsley Walker, Policy Transformation Manager of the Street Trust, an organization that has been at the forefront of actions to increase safety and access since its birth as the Bicycle Transportation Alliance. In the second half of the show, our guest will be Katie Gould, transportation researcher for the Sightline Institute. Founded in 1993, the Sightline Institute is committed to making the Northwest a global model of sustainability with strong communities, a green economy, and a healthy environment. Katie Gould is also a member of BikeLoud PDX and a member of the City of Portland's Bicycle Advisory Committee. Thank you for joining us today. In almost every war of the past 150 years, bicycles appear. In the past, they were used by soldiers as well as by resistance fighters. They've also been used by civilians fleeing the terrors of war. In the latest bloodletting, the Russian assault on the Ukraine, scenes of civilians riding or pushing bicycles, often laden with what they were able to save and carry, have also been noted my heart goes out to all those suffering in the Ukraine. May the war end soon and people return to their homes and to riding their bicycles for fun and enjoyment. Before we speak with our first guest, Andrea Lightsley Walker of the Street Trust, a few news items from the vast cycling universe. In an article titled, Cargo Without Carbon, The Rise and Rise of E-Bike Deliveries, the British newspaper The Guardian reports that demand for electric cargo bike couriers has boomed since the first lockdown, bringing the hope of cleaner, quieter, safer streets. Reporter Amelia Hill 
begins the article by noting that traffic congestion, a roar of diesel and carbon emissions could be avoided. She writes, since the first lockdown, increasing numbers of companies have started delivering their products and passengers on electric cargo bikes. According to a new directory, there are now almost 450 independent businesses and tradespeople across the UK transforming the sight, sound, and smell of our cities and towns by delivering goods to customers using nothing but electricity and pedal power. She writes, over the course of the pandemic, the rise of businesses using e-cargo bikes for deliveries has been breathtaking said Helena Downey, the founder of Bought by Bike Directory. The rise is so dramatic that this could become mainstream. Like many other cargo bike delivery services, the Grace Network, the Bike Drop in Stroud, was set up in the early days of the pandemic to help businesses struggling to reach customers. There was immediate interest as soon as we opened from both companies and customers. Companies wanted to choose the greener options for deliveries, while customers loved having their shopping delivered by bike. And we all love having cleaner, quieter, safer streets, said Harry McCune, the managing director of the Bike Drop. Business grew quickly. We soon had 13 employees delivering items for 36 local businesses, said McCune. We now have a fleet of electric bikes that have, in total, made over 6,500 individual pickups and deliveries for local businesses, cycled over 10,000 kilometers, and saved over 2,300 kilograms of CO2. During the pandemic, we delivered takeaway beer bladders for pubs, as well as deliveries for restaurants, local food co-ops, bakeries, florists, independent cosmetics producers, and music shops, bookshops, other social enterprises, and local publications. We've now expanded in all directions. We even offer an Echo Post service and have delivered over 2,500 letters for Stroud District Council. E-cargo bikes can move more quickly through the city streets, meaning they're able to deliver packages 60% faster than their van equivalents. They're cleaner, saving about 90% in carbon emissions, quieter, and cut congestion as a cargo bike uses a fraction of the road space of a typical delivery van. Pedal Me, which transports not just packages, but people around central London, has seen business double since the pandemic began. And this is in the UK, and the situation is similar in other cities. And in a future show, we hope to focus on this new, exciting and positive phenomena. And in a new story from France, car advertisements in France will have to include messages encouraging people to consider less polluting travel alternatives from 2022 as part of the government's drive to rein in CO2 emissions. The requirement made into law last month came after years of lobbying from environmental groups, many of which seek an outright ban on automobile ads. Similar to mandatory reminders to eat healthy on food and drink ads, the standardized messages will suggest that drivers adopt more environmentally responsible options when possible. Car makers will have three choices. Consider carpooling, for day-to-day -day use, take public transportation, or for short trips, opt for walking or cycling. They will be required for all media, print, TV, radio, or internet, and must also include a hashtag that translates into move and pollute less. The ads will also have to include a vehicle CO2 emission class, a new ranking system to inform consumers about the environmental impact that is part of a widespread climate action law approved by lawmakers in France in July. As part of the new French law, advertising for the most polluting vehicles, those that emit more than 123 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometer, including many popular SUVs, will be completely outlawed from 2028. And those were two news items from the vast bicycling universe. You're listening to The Bike Show. Thank you for joining us today.
Our first guest today is Andre Leitzley Walker, Policy Transformation Manager of the Street Trust, an organization that has been at the forefront of actions to increase safety and access for all Portland cyclists since its birth as the Bicycle Transportation Alliance. The Street Trust works, quote, for multi-model transportation options that prioritize safety, accessibility, equity, and climate justice in the Portland metro region. Good day and welcome to the show. Uh, before we get to the Street Trust and its work, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, in relation to, I guess, urban planning and livability work, uh, specifically transportation, I think that's been with me since a very young age. I had a single mother who rode TriMet uh, to get to work and to drop me off at school. Um, and so, you know, I think by eight years old, I was riding the bus bus alone. And so it really started to help me develop the way I think about cities and the way that we move around. Um, I was an avid skateboarder in middle school and high school, um, which I think really shifted my relationship uh, with the built environment. And then more recently uh, in high school um, and college, I actually was a cross country and track runner. And so I was able to go super far distances without any vehicle except for my, my two feet. So I think through those experiences, they really contributed to the way I think about the places we live and play. And uh, were you a cyclist as a kid? I'd, I'd say not necessarily more than any other well actually so my senior year of high school I lived in North Portland and I went to school like almost St. John's and I went to school at Grant High School uh, and I actually um, I bike to school every day and so yeah I guess uh, I've always I've always had a bike um, and I and I definitely love to use them right now I actually um, use the bike town bikes quite a bit so um, cycling has been it was never really like huge in my family necessarily but I always saw it as a great way for me to get around um, without a car and when you were growing up what was it like to cycle or skateboard in in Portland were there any bicycle lanes because I lived in northeast Portland many years ago and uh, around Garfield Street Alberta okay. and didn't see many cyclists there were no lanes um, mm -hmm. was that your experience when you were growing up or? Yeah, I'd say one street in particular that, that has since been changed, um, and now that I'm thinking back on it, it was pretty gnarly that I was doing this as a 17-year-old, is Greeley along the uh, Adidas campus. That area, when I was biking to school, was not separated at all, and so I was just biking along basically freeway traffic, but it was the fastest route for me to get where I was going, so um, there have been a lot of uh, infrastructure improvements since then, but I think uh, there's still a long way to go. And in college, you studied planning? Yes. Yeah, so my undergrad was in philosophy, which, which is what really started all of this, but philosophy and public policy. And then I got my master's degree from Portland State in urban and regional planning. And you worked for the city of Eugene for a while as a planner? Oh. Yep. So that was really cool. I was at, it was, it was actually during my senior year of undergrad. I had the opportunity, my internship transformed into a, a more permanent position. And I worked actually at the front, the front counter. And so people would come in with all kinds of planning questions, often about additional dwelling units and things like that. And they'd be like, hey, how, how tall can my second building be on my property? And I had this big like almanac of all things Eugene planning code um, that I got pr pretty sufficient at, at navigating. Eugene seems like a good place for cycling. I think so. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, it And it's actually improved since I've moved back to Portland. But I think one thing about college spaces is there's a little bit more creativity. Um, so when you have a community that's centered on thought, I think really cool things emerge from that. And then also, uh, big shout out to the city of Eugene being the um, track and field capital um, of the United States. And I think when you support people that are active transportation users like runners, like bicycling will naturally fall within that caretaking. And uh, college towns uh, tend to be not always, but often to be more politically progressive mm -hmm. and um, with more awareness about climate issues. Uh, the Street Trust, what does the organization do? Yeah, so the Street Trust is a member-based organization, so uh, we're supported by our members that advocates for multimodal transportation options. Um, and we prioritize safety, accessibility, 
equity and climate justice in the Portland metro region. So really trying to get the region to move towards uh, a more robust multimodal system that accommodates the needs of a much more diverse range of people. Your job uh, title is transformation manager. I like yes. that. I like that title. Yes. Um, yes. What does it involve day to day? Yeah. So my work is oriented around, um, at its core, really supporting relationships, uh, both with community leaders uh, as well as elected officials, to work towards achieving these outcomes that we want in in our mission. So, how can we make sure that? The people in our communities' voices are being reflected in the decisions uh, being made at the table. Because I think for so long in, in American or Portland political history, there's been a disconnect between the needs of the community and then what's going on at the decision-making table. So a lot of my job is making sure that I'm able to take the big complex issues involved in transportation and, and prove to people that they're actually not that complex and give them the power and knowledge they need to participate in the decision-making processes. And uh, what are some of the Street Trust campaigns? Where have it been, where has it been successful? And are there any issues that it has not succeeded in carrying mm -hmm. forward? Yeah, totally. So our organization has actually been around since 1991, and we were originally founded as the Portland Area Bicycle Coalition. Shortly after that, we became the Bicycle Transportation Alliance, and that was our identity for many, many years. But I think one of our most notable and earliest wins was actually in 1992 when we got TriMet to pilot bike racks um, on two bus lines. And so it's really hard for me to imagine. I was born in 94, so this is after this. To imagine a transit network that didn't support bicycles being attached. Um, and so through that fight, um, in 1995, custom racks were installed across all of TriMet buses. So um, I think that's a huge win, and it's really hard for me to imagine what our system would look like without that. As somebody who rode in Portland before you were born, I can testify that the changes are fantastic. There's still so much work to be done, but things like the racks um, and, of course, lanes and more awareness and more cyclists has been uh, have been wonderful to see. But again, there's still much work to be done. Still, um, yes. <laughs> So um, how has the pandemic affected transportation in the city? What public transportation, cycling? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. And I think that's been at the top of mind for a lot of folks in the field. So transit ridership is down. I think that's a natural response to a, a pandemic. Uh, people don't necessarily want to be next to each other. So I've heard estimates of that it will take about six years for TriMet to reach pre-pandemic numbers. So I think that's one. Uh, right off the bat that's, that's quite alarming and as a result of that we saw driving and drive alone trips go up and a result of that is that we saw a lot uh, a huge increase in in death and serious injuries in our streets and then we we've also seen sort of this emergence of people not going outside at all people doing you know grubhub uber eats um and that's stimulating uh car trips that weren't necessarily happening before so I've seen a huge shift sort of in the wrong direction. And, and I think humans are rational beings. And so the the rise back into car trips was to be expected. But I think, you know, some people also started trying bikes for the new for the first time, which I think is notable. And maybe they found out it, it's not as good as it should be. And so I think we have a lot of work to do to ensure that the people that were piloting cycling or different modes are able to continue to do that now that we're on the other side of the pandemic. And Portland has a Bicycle Plan 2030, which was created in 2010. And that plan envisions a bicycle rideshare mode of 25%. But we've been stuck at about 7% for quite a while. While other cities during the pandemic, like Paris, have moved forward. And a lot has to do with political leadership, with having a socialist mayor um, who's very aware of the environment. How, how do we move from 7% to 25%? Yeah, great question. I think at its core, you know, mode split is about human psychology, right? So at the very, very base, we need to figure out who we need to be directing our bike more energy to. So you've got a pop, you got seven percent of the population that's doing what we want them to do. We can kind of set them aside for this portion and focus on that other group. What is it? Eighteen percent of folks that we want to, and, and we need to really like reach out to them, figure out what their barriers are 
to bicycling and, and that becoming their dominant mode of travel. For many, many folks, they don't want to get on a bike because it's cold or because they don't feel safe doing it. So I think we have a responsibility as a region, as a city, to ensure that it is a viable option. People are rational. They, they have places they need to be. They want to get there as quick and as easy as they can. If driving is that route, that's the route they're going to take. And so we have to be very strategic in, first of all, getting people to try out new modes like biking and then making sure that they feel safe and confident in their ability to do it and, and get where they're going every time and faster than a car. And um, one explanation for this um, stagnation in the percentage of riders that I've heard was that a lot of the people who did ride, young people, uh, people of color, uh, people in the lower economic um, earning level have been forced to move out of the inner city, northeast Portland, inner southeast, and those uh, areas have been the residents are more affluent, tend to drive more. Is that, um, do you think, a generalization or is there truth to this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely, I think it's a generalization, but I think it's also, there's truth to it as well. I think we have to recognize who is able to make a bike trip. If you are a single mother with two children and you have to take your kids to work and to school and those places are a certain distance apart, it's going to be nearly impossible to convert that person into a cyclist, especially if the infrastructure isn't there to support it. And if it's in the middle of January and it's you know snowing in Portland. Um, and so I think, uh, as I mentioned before, we just have to be very strategic in focusing on the people that we can convert. Um, I think that there's 25% of people that we can convert. I think we need to spend energy on supporting that and then also some proving facilities so more people are brave enough to try it in the first place. And you're also a legislative aide. How would you describe Oregon's House and Senate receptiveness to cycling, walking, and public transportation? Are there any bills on the floor right now that you're excited about? Yeah, um, so... Yeah, so um, short session just ended, and I would say, uh, so it was the, my first time participating um, in a legislative session. I would say overall, the House and Senate are, are rooted in an auto-centric framework. I think you have a lot of folks that drive, right? And so the decision makers in that space aren't, aren't necessarily the same people that are you know, biking to work. And I think that's because it's, it's somewhat of an exclusionary role not because of potentially reasons like low pay, like not everyone's able to participate in that process. And so I think there is some care to pedestrians and, you know, cyclists. Um, but I, what I observed during my time was that much of the legislation that was being discussed and talked about was really oriented around freight trucks, fuel types, and personal vehicles, which was kind of upsetting. And I'd, I'd love to see some some more pedestrian and bicycle-centered uh, legislation emerge. One of the most significant transportation bills that was passed was HB 4105, which removed administrative barriers for processing speed camera photos, which is also like, that's car-centric, but the intended outcome is that the city of Portland will be able to implement more speed cams that will actually lead to reduced deaths and serious injuries on our roadways. So I think that that's a big win that we took away from, from the session. And the representative you work with, where does she... Uh, yes, Representative Com Pham. And she is an absolute powerhouse and leader uh, when it comes to multimodal transportation, prioritizing the needs of our, our region's most vulnerable transportation users. And she is a huge proponent of a transformative transportation future where people have multiple ways to get around it. So... Uh, it was such a privilege to get to work under her. I can imagine that she is thinking critically about um, legislation that, that moves that vision forward. And as somebody who traveled hundreds of times on the Eugene-Portland Amtrak line and Davis-Berkeley line, um, trains are wonderful systems, but in this country, they're <laughs> a little bit far, too few and too slow. Yeah. And uh, yes, yes, there are yes. a lot of, but it would be wonderful if uh, there was a bullet train, you know, along the West Coast between mm -hmm. Portland and Eugene. Um, and that would definitely increase ridership. And uh, Totally. <laughs> I, it's, it's my understanding that the Washington State Legislature passed about $150 million in funding a study of a high-speed rail between Seattle and Portland, at least, is my understanding. And so I think those conversations are going to start emerging sooner than later. 
as they say, from your mouth to the ear of God or the goddess? Yes. Uh, <laughs> this is a pretty big question, and we don't have uh, a few days to talk, but um, <laughs> I'll ask anyway, because Please. it seems like a lot of your work is along these lines, but um, how have transportation decisions and policies um, in Portland, you know, historically been affected by issues of race and class? Oh, goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, give, me the reader, mean, give me the Reader's Digest version today. Yes, yes. Uh, well, listeners, uh, I think that the first thing to know is that Oregon, from its inception, was rooted in, in controlling the movement of people of color. And so not only, you know, the, the, the colonization of the space and the genocide of indigenous people uh, of the region, but also when... Oregon was officially formed a state. We regulated the movement of black people through the space. And so I think before we start to talk about anything modern or contemporary, we must first ground ourselves in the fact that, that this region has foundationally held itself, played a role in the relationship between transportation and race and class. And so we see that play out throughout history. I'm, I'm particularly familiar um, with the experience of the black community. I, I'm a black person that's my family's been in Portland nearly 100 years, and so that's what I'm most familiar with. And so through that story, like when my, my great-grandparents moved here in the 30s, another transportation uh, issue that emerged, they said, you are not allowed to live in these areas. You have to live in this space. And so I think that's, from the very start, where you live starts to tell a story about where you're able to move and go and access. Moving on from that, you know, fast forward to the freeway era when what is now ODOT allowed for the barreling uh, through established black neighborhoods to, to build the freeway. So I think it's really important just to understand the relationship between where people live, how where they need to be, where what their class is, specifically in relation to the types of work they do and how close their jobs are allowed to be to their house. Like we have a class that emerged through COVID, like we have a class of folks who don't have to commute anymore, right? And I think uh, if we looked at the demographics of the folks that don't have to commute, I would I would argue, and I haven't seen the data on this, but based on my personal observations, I would say the vast majority uh, or a disproportionate amount of people that are able to work remotely are disproportionately white. And I think that's something that we need to start thinking about as well. And it is um, not surprising that whenever there's a, a plan for a freeway or freeway expansion, it's always through communities of color or communities of people on the lower end of the economic scale. It, it seems like almost a God-given <laughs> fact that that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm, you know, the so. path of least resistance is what they like to call it. <laughs> um, and that's where bicycles can make a difference because uh, relatively they're accessible. They could be made even more accessible, you Absolutely. know, given free uh, for very low cost. Or mm -hmm. So so where, where do you see yourself in five or ten years as far as your work, <laughs> your life, and in your crystal ball? Wow, that's a big question. So, uh, I've been pondering that. Um, I, I definitely, whatever I'm doing, I want to continue um, making sure that, that my time and energy is going into su supporting community and community's ability to just have better lives, whatever that means. Maybe, maybe it's not always transportation. Maybe it's, you know, housing or just general, you know, well-being and fitness. I am, as I had mentioned earlier, uh, my background's in philosophy, and so I, I definitely consider myself an academic, and so something I've been pondering is actually returning to school and pursuing uh, a PhD, but I would not do that in the United States. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about moving to Berlin, and Germany has quite a robust train system, mm -hmm. um, and, and studying and, and building up some knowledge that I can bring back and share with the people so that I can continue to make wherever I live uh, a better place and easier for people to get around. But yeah, that's a big question. And I'm so sorry. I haven't figured it all out. I'm just kind of uh, taking it one step at a time. Wow. It, it sounds uh, like a wonderful plan. And I hope you, you meet that goal. Our Thank time you. is almost up. Uh, but I'd like to ask you maybe again, a philosophical question, a visionary question. Um, how do you see Portland in, in 10, 20 years also, as far as transportation, as far as uh, racial equality? Are you optimistic as far as economic equality and justice? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm an optimist at heart. 
And so I think Portland does have the potential to uh, be a very transformative place and be a leader. And, 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 and our history shows that we have, you know, we were bicycling capital of the United States, which I think is so amazing. I think, I think we've lost our way a little bit. Um, and I, I think what we need to get down to is get down to the core of what it means to, to, to be a Portland uh, Portlander. Um, and for me, that means really caring about your neighbor, being creative, whether it's art or, or the way you get around or the music you listen to. But I think a key is we have to really reestablish our community. For, for recent history, through all the things that we've gone through, we, pandemic, a neo-fascist ruler of our nation, I think we really have to get down to our basics and like come together to see the future we want, uh, to build the future we want together. Um, I think um, we have a lot of big decisions to make, and if we continue to go down a path of, of freeways and, and unrestrained capital gain, I think we will have a terrible future. The, the planet's on fire, and we felt it last summer. Uh, and, I'm, and I think people just need to really come together, uh, imagine a future together, and then really start moving towards it. Uh, but there's so many players, um, and I think we really need to start at the ground level and unite together as, as, as people. And this is a wonderful place to end. We've been speaking with Andrea Lightsley Walker, transformation and transportation expert and worker with Street Trust and many other good campaigns. All the best to you. And Thank you so much, my friend. We have been speaking with Andrea Lightsley Walker, Policy Transformation Manager of the Street Trust. Our second guest today is Katie Gould, Transportation Researcher for the Sightline Institute, which is committed to making the Northwest a global model of sustainability with strong communities, a green economy, and a healthy environment. Katie Gould is also a member of BikeLoud PDX and a member of the City of Portland's Bicycle Advisory Committee. Good day and welcome to the show. Good morning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, maybe your cycling history? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Katie Gould, and I guess to start, I didn't really bike very much as a kid. I grew up in northern Maine, and while we lived in a pretty small town, the road that I grew up next to was 50 mile an hour, four lanes of traffic, so biking was something that you did somewhere else kind of for fun, and I wasn't really a strong biker at all until, until I moved to the West Coast after college. I got my first job out on Bashan Island, and it was working for a small nonprofit there, and it was kind of a temporary thing. I knew I was going to be there for at least three months. So I didn't bring my car out here when I moved, and someone let me borrow their bicycle. And that's when I started riding as an adult. And uh, I ended up moving to Portland maybe six months later. Um, and one of the first things I did was buy a bike. I was really deeply in debt with my student loans, so I was riding mm -hmm. instead of driving my car socially when I was, like, getting around town on the weekends and after work, even though I was still car commuting. That's kind of the... <laughs> This, the start of how I got into um, transportation issues was living here, biking around and kind of noticing different things around the city that I thought could be improved. You have a degree in mechanical engineering and you worked on designing better printers. How did you make the transition from printers to transportation to climate advocacy? <laughs> I guess I've always really cared about the environment, even when I was a little kid. I don't know if you remember the movie Fern Gully, where they're trying to sabotage the bulldozers in the rainforest. Um, that was like one of my favorite <laughs> movies as a kid. So in my engineering career, the thing that I really liked about it, I'm a really curious person. I like understanding how things work, um, making them work better. It was a really great career I had um, for someone who was really interested in math and science in school. And the, the great thing, I worked at HP for a long time and their headquarters are there in Vancouver, Washington, where we design a lot of inkjet printers. They had a really great flexible work-life balance. I didn't have to work late very often and I had like a lot of flexibility to go do things in Portland after work in the evenings. And in that way, I'm, I feel like really grateful that I had a great setup where I was able to make time to get more involved in issues in Portland and join organizations here in town. You were the co-chair of BikeLoud Portland. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization? Yeah, well, BikeLoud PDX initially started, I wasn't one of the founders, I came in later. Kind of started as, you know, there's people that want Portland to be better for biking. Um, they want to see some more progress and kind of 
it's easier getting together with other people who have similar concerns or complaints about what the city is doing around bike infrastructure. So it's really like a collection of people who maybe would be inclined to go to a public meeting on their own anyways, but now they can work with other people and strategize and kind of host events together. I started getting involved. It was really for memorial. People who have been killed by drivers in the city, sometimes you read these things on the news, but maybe it wasn't until I lived here that I really started being impacted by those stories because I was biking around town and I would recognize those streets and you know, gosh, that could have been me. It could have been one of my friends. So I started just showing up to events that are put on in remembrance after somebody dies. And I just wanted to be there as an extra person in the crowd to kind of signal with my physical presence that I really care about this. And this is an issue that's important to me. Bike Lab hosted a lot of those memorials. And to me, it really helps every time you put on an event like that. It's another opportunity for it to get in the news, for more people to be aware of the traffic violence that's happening here and know that these are people and our neighbors. So I think that, you know, that's something that I think was quite successful. Other things that we've done is really try to make noise around other bike infrastructure projects in the city. Better NATO is a project that we helped support and we had numerous events around. That project was, it wasn't something that the city led on. It was community members, Better Block PDX. They were behind that project. They got the permits, they put up the cones themselves. And the city kind of adopted it eventually as, as first a seasonal project and then a year round. And now it's a, you know, it's been under construction and I think it'll be fully open soon as um, a two-way protected bike lane. So that was something that we're really happy to support and kind of keep telling city council that those kind of projects are important. And I participated in some of those memorials and also the monthly bike rides. And I could testify that there's a nice sense of community that's fostered by these events. Portland has a reputation for being a great bicycle city, and yet, by many measures, we're not doing so well as far as safety and access. What exactly is the state of cycling in Portland now? When we look at like the numbers, by the numbers um, of like the number of people, people biking, the best data we have is the census about who commutes by which mode of travel. And that's not maybe the ideal measurement, but that's what we have the most information on. And importantly, we know that that peaked in 2014 and it's been going down since. So less people are biking. To me, it really speaks to the type of bike infrastructure that we have in Portland. If you live here, we have a lot of people that ride along neighborhood greenways. It's kind of been some of the oldest parts of our bike network. And those are shared streets with cars on you know usually low traffic residential neighborhoods um, and that's okay but they're very permeable so when there's more cars in the city there's also more cars on those streets especially people are trying to get around busier streets that have more traffic so at least to me it's you know I feel more nerve-wracking going out and biking around the city than I did when I moved here 10 years ago just because there's more cars, it feels like people are driving aggressively and there's just not as much physical protection or separation as, as you would want. And according to some measures between 2010 and 2020, the number of fatalities on the streets have increased, almost doubled. Portland is now ranked the 14th most traffic congested city in the U.S. There is a wonderful bike plan for 2030. What does that plan say? And what did the city council vote for in 2010? It doesn't seem like they're using it. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that there was a, some of the biggest goals, they wanted a 25% bicycle mode share, I think for all trips. So that means if you're going out, one in four people that are making a trip are traveling by bike. So that's a lot more than I think the, you know, 7% that we were in 2014. And the way they were going to do that is build a lot of new bike infrastructure, bike lanes and greenways. Um, having a network that connects to each other where you can get from one section to another is quite important. And I think, so Bike Lab, we started looking more into this about what did the plan say? Where should we be? The city does have also goals about reducing transportation emissions and the number of people driving. Kind of like the top line, we would like people to drive half as much by 2030, 2035 as they do now. And that, you know, that requires a, a lot of change um, and a lot of political support because the majority of people drive now. And we'd kind of like to flip that. We'd like people to not drive most of the time to be able to get their errands 
you know, walking or biking or taking the bus. Yes, I would be happy. So people do all those things, not just biking. I do all those things. I also own a car and I drive, but I use it kind of rarely. That's what the plan set out to do. I would say that it doesn't have a lot of political power anymore. When BiPad, we ended up making a report of what we thought would be some good recommendations to help accelerate our progress in building more bike infrastructure in Portland. We took that to Commissioner Udaley's office, and it, it felt like kind of a surprise for them to kind of see how plainly we laid it out of, you know, here, here's the goals and here's where we are. And it is true that we are building more bike lanes, more bike facilities every year. So that means every year the, the network is bigger and stronger than it's ever been. But somehow, you know, we're still losing ridership. We're not building the right type of facility to keep people feeling safe out there. And 25% of all rides seems like a wonderful goal. I think now it's about 7%. And that probably also depends on part of town you live in. Are there any uh, statistics about where Portland cyclists live? Oh, yeah, there's definitely maps online where you can see, I think, by maybe zip code or by um, even like census areas where more people bike. A lot, you know, the bike ridership is highest, I would say, in the inner northeast and southeast side of Portland, where the Greenway network is the strongest. So certainly like where people bike has has also changed as people get priced out of different parts of the city and um, oftentimes have to move further away from the center where there might not be as good connectivity or their commute and all the places they used to go now they're further away from so it seems less feasible. Some cities in the world like Paris have done an amazing job in the last 10-15 years increasing the number of bicycle lanes and safety and reducing car usage. I wonder if that could be applied to Portland as well. I'm so happy that you brought up Paris. Probably six years ago, I was able to take a couple months off of work. I had a friend that was getting married overseas, and I made like a big trip out of it. And one of those places I went to was Paris. They had, just like where we were in time, they had a city bike share system. Portland hadn't gotten theirs yet. Uh, There was like a company that fell through. So I've never, like I this trip was some of the first places I rode bike share. And they had the very first car-free day in the central city. I rearranged my whole trip to be there for that because it was announced after I was like already landed in Europe (laughs) in a different place. And I went with this friend that I'd made traveling, Michael, who lived there, and we biked around together. And he was just so amazed at how quiet the city was. He kept talking about, wow, this is sounds so different. And there were tons of people out biking that day. And to me, it felt, wow, this, you know, this doesn't seem that hard to put on. It's like a Sunday parkway, but they're doing a zone instead of a route. But it was kind of a similar level of quality. There were still a lot of taxis and buses that were allowed inside the boundaries. So it wasn't definitely not 100% car free. So in that time, right, I, I came back to Portland from that trip. I was like very inspired. I started getting involved with Better Block, which were doing their own pop-up project like Better NATO, um, like Better Broadway. I helped out on that project. And it's been amazing to see what Paris has done since. I keep reading about it in the news. They they closed this big highway along the river that I remember walking on the sidewalk there. And I think, you know, once you kind of show people what is possible, that it's, it is possible to get around the city by bike, um, it's really nice. You kind of, it's like a, people can experience it. And so they really built some really strong political support for reclaiming the city from cars and converting a lot of space for cars on the road and for parking into other uses. Paris obviously is different than Portland in a lot of ways. It's a much denser city. They have a very strong public transportation system. And I think they also had like some transit strikes where it wasn't running. And a lot of people took to biking instead as an alternative. So it's a little bit more resilient in that way. So there's been a number of things that have happened, but it's not impossible. Um, the cities can make big changes and build political support. But it takes some strong visionary leaders that are really committed to, to selling people on that idea and making it work. And Paris has had a socialist mayor, Mayor Hidalgo, who's very concerned about climate. I'm wondering, in Portland, we've had two uh, progressive and aware about uh, issues of social justice commissioners heading the Transportation Bureau. What's your take? and what the last two commissioners we had have done. Yeah, well, I'll say I really liked Commissioner Daly. I also plan on voting for her to see again. Um, Neither of them came in with a very strong transportation platform. It wasn't what they were interested in getting in politics for. And there's there's a lot to learn 
There's a lot of issues in transportation. The budgets are these long multi-year cycles. And by the time you come in, it kind of feels like the next few years about what we're going to do is kind of set already in the funding. And this is something, you know, you can run into the advocacy space. There's a lot of reasons why it's like hard to change things quickly. But it's just a complicated bureau. So, I I mean, I really, I think they're doing a, a good job relatively. But hard to see when she came to the Bicycle Advisory Committee, maybe it was last year, it was clear that nobody at PBOT briefed her about the 2030 bike plan. And I don't think that's on her. There's a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of different initiatives. So it doesn't seem like there's very strong political support within the agency to figure out where this plan fits in with what they're doing in the future. I think when Bike Lab did this analysis, we kind of estimated that we're only going to build 35% of the bike infrastructure that we had hoped to by the time 2030 comes along, like at our current pace. So I think it's really important to talk about what what are we going to build then? What's our strategy? Are we trying to increase bike access to transit where there's more transit ridership to kind of increase that transit shed? Are we trying to help people to get to the grocery store? To me, then going to, you know, I've gone to a lot of meetings, I'm on the Bicycle Advisory Committee, and I can't quite describe to you, like, what what the strategy is for, like, what we're deciding to build next. Um, It kind of takes me (laughs) by surprise as much as uh, anyone else's, like, what the next project coming up is. So are you optimistic that the goals set up in the plan for 2030 could be met in the next eight years? I would be very surprised. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't doubt that we can make great progress but one thing I am like optimistic about is that it seems like we're going to have a chance soon to talk about our system of government, which is also a barrier. Transportation is such a big issue. We really deserve to have more people on city council concerned about it and feeling political pressure to make changes to, to keep people safe and to make our transportation system more equitable for different people. And that if you only take the bus or if you only you can't afford a car that you can get around the city just as easy as someone who does have one. It's come up (laughs) in lots of conversations over the years that it's going to be really hard to make a big change in how bureaus operate to being accountable to their own plans and to following up on policies that city council adopts without some sort of a change in our government. And it seems like this has come up to voters in the past, but it seems like people are really frustrated now. Um, I am optimistic that there might be a big change there uh, that I think could really benefit how our city works. Speaking of uh, becoming involved, you were a member of the City of Portland's Bicycle Advisory Committee. What does the committee do and what power does it have? Uh, from your experience, do politicians, planners, other workers of the Bureau of Transportation actually listen and act on the recommendations? So I've served two terms on the committee, and there's like a variety in what people are looking for. I guess I'd kind of describe it as like, it's a it's a public meeting that happens once a month, and the people on the committee have always an opportunity to make at least one comment. But no, we don't really have any real power we can give advice. One thing that I feel like has a little bit hampered the ability to help PBOT the most. You know, if we can, we'd love to like get advanced looks at their stuff and be able to give them feedback, especially before things go to the public. And one thing that's, you know, happened a couple times is they don't really like presenting things that aren't publicly available yet. Like Portland usually reports on their meetings so they know that the press is always going to be there. And there's been a couple times where there was a press release about a big program that was rolled out the same, you know, hours before the meeting and it was on the agenda. I want to say the COVID healthy streets was like that. So that to me, it really makes it hard to say for sure that we have influential feedback. We have helped with some, the city presents projects to us to see if there's something obvious that we're missing. Is there an update we could make? But yeah, sometimes it is like hard to feel like we see um, a lot of good results from that. And cycling, of course, is part of the larger picture about climate and change. I like the article you've written, which was published in the Always Excellent Bike Portland site, titled How I Learned to Cope with Climate Grief. Can you tell those of us that feel sometimes down and hopeless, uh, what strategies help you? Yeah, I wrote that. I was having a really hard time when I wrote that. 
that was back before the pandemic and I started going to this support group where it was just really nice to talk to other people who were going through a rough time, being depressed, being very anxious, saying like, I really need to talk about the this really heavy news that I'm sitting with and it feels like nobody's acting the right way. That's, I think for me, I had this moment in my adulthood of, I had this idea of how the government worked and kind of our potential to solve really big problems. And then, you know, here I am, like, I'm very close to, I talk to people in the government all the time. And then, oh, we have a decade to like have our, our emissions. And I'm like, gosh, these (laughs) cycling projects can easily take six, eight years. You know, this Mm -hmm. isn't good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of made me feel despaired. So I think, you know, I still go in and out of it of feeling very overwhelmed by the enormity I think that's totally appropriate. We shouldn't be trying to avoid feeling overwhelmed or to be really considering um, what the future is going to look like. I think right now I'm more kind of in a place of acceptance where I, I'm i aware this is going to be an issue for my whole life. My whole lifetime, we can spend reducing emissions and trying to make a, a better world for the future. It's going to take that long. <laughs> Being a you know, trying to be involved and do what I can, I think is important. But also for me, it's important to recognize that there's no like one answer. There's no one strategy. We have to change a lot, a lot about our built environment, some things about how we live, how we support people, especially going through weather related disasters as our like economy changes and things start growing in different, like there's a lot of change that's coming our way. I personally really dislike change. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've lived here for a decade. Mm-hmm. I order like the same lunch all the time. <laughs> um, so like I would rather change everything else than to change like the weather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like the big change that I'm really afraid of. But I think, you know, finding other people and it, it shouldn't be a taboo topic. I think the weather that we've had the last few years, I definitely feel like people are way more open about it, expressing their anxiety about like, gosh, if it's like this, if we're having this type of storm this year, I'm really worried about the future. So it's really good to good to talk and find something that, at least for me, like find something that really interests me to work on to say I can, I'd really like to give my skills and my time to just one little thing. And I know there's a million other people out there that are also working on their one little thing. And as a, you know, that's feeling pretty good for me at the moment. Uh, for me, what helps is being with like-minded people who are doing things, and uh, BikeLoud PDX is a great place to do that. And also remembering how far we've come, There's re- remembering how many good people there are and how much they have done to make the world better always helps me. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there's, good, there's good things and good examples happening all over the place, mm-hmm. and um, for me, um, it's never really worked to like tune out the news because you maybe you don't read the bad news, but you also don't read some of the good news mm-hmm. um, that's out there. This is totally within our grasp to make a make big changes. As we're speaking, I'm sitting next to a copy of Yes magazine, Yes with exclamation mark, a magazine coming out of Washington that talks about the situation, but also things that people are doing. And there are many other publications and groups. Our time is almost up. So I wanted to ask you um, quickly, first of all, uh, you work for the Sightline Institute. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what that institute does? Sure. Um, Sightline, we are a climate-focused think tank, and, and we want to make the Pacific Northwest a global model of sustainability. That's like at the, at the heart of what we're trying to do. So this was a, a pretty big career change for me. Actually, I just started this last summer, and, you know, for people listening, it sounds like this was very abrupt. It took me like three or four years <laughs> of thinking, maybe I'd like to get um, more into journalism or, you know, I don't really want to be, I know, I knew I didn't want to be an engineer forever, but it was a really good place to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. And it took me a long time of writing for like Portland and volunteering with nonprofits and did like a lot of exploring. So right now they hired me as a transportation researcher. So now I am full-time reading news about transportation and talking to people about transportation. Currently, I've been doing a lot of research about the impacts of off-street parking requirements, a little rule in pretty much every zoning code across America that when you build a new home or, or a business, you're required to have a certain number of parking spots. So I've been 
doing research and trying to find, you know, different stories to tell about like how these requirements affect our cities and uh, you and me, people who live in them. And finally, what's next for you in your crystal ball? Where are you and maybe the planet and the city in 10, 15 years? Well, some things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how cities can just respond more quickly. You know, there's a lot of things that people are frustrated about. It feels like we don't make change very fast. And figure out kind of like what are the systematic things that how can we get start getting rid of some of these roadblocks? How can we do transit better? We just had our transit service. We haven't been really resilient. What's the what's a good pathway for emergency funding for for public transit? There's like a, a lot of things that we would benefit from from being able to change course quicker to be more responsive to what people are needing in the moment as the world's changing really fast. The other thing I think about is when we get to this electric car future, which is like, gosh, do we need to, uh, we need to stop, stop selling and using fossil fuel cars. That's very bad for the planet. That's a huge challenge for us. I'm, I'm worried about the transition and I'm worried about electric cars actually being easier or cheaper to drive per mile then fossil fuel and electricity is often cheaper than gas. We're seeing a lot of people, right? There's a lot of stress right now, gas prices, and we're seeing like a lot of changes in taxes happening. And I'm really worried that people will drive more, um, especially for me. One of the reasons I don't drive a lot is I do feel guilty. I don't really want to be driving. It's not my preference. I get kind of stressed out in traffic and finding parking. You know, those are all challenging things and those are also gonna exist with electric cars. But ideally, I'd like to see this transition happen in a way that we aren't driving more as a result of it being cheaper or easier. All right. Thank you. Um, And this is a good place to end. We've been speaking with Katie Gould. Thank you so much for being on the show and all the best. Great. Thank you so much for having me. We have been speaking with Katie Gould, transportation researcher for the Sightline Institute member of BikeLoud PDX and a member of the City of Portland's Bicycle Advisory Committee. And finally, a reminder that at the end of the month, April 25th to the 27th, the annual Oregon Active Transportation Summit organized by the Street Trust will take place. The summit features many wonderful speakers, presentations, and discussions. To register, check the Street Trust site at thestreettrust.org. You've been listening to The Bike Show. My name is Alon Rob, and my co-host is Nedra Deadweiler. Thank you for joining us today. Safe and fun rides. would like you to meet a friend rides. of ours who goes by the name of Killer Joe. Picture a so-called hippie or hip cat standing on a corner in a neatly pressed double-breasted form-fitting pinstripe suit. A pair of pointed-toed shoes with bold white stitches around the soles. A black shirt long white tie, a black pencil mustache, and of course, a very wide-brimmed black felt hat. Killer Joe always has a pocket full of loot, but only the kind that jingles. You see, he likes to play with horses. He is most certainly a ladies' man. As a matter of fact, he is always willing to accept cash contributions from them for any cause, namely his own. The most important thing about Killer Joe that you have to know is that he's very much against manual labor. Killer Joe.
are listening to KBOO Portland. Hi, I'm Rick Mitchell, and I would like to invite you to check out my program, Jazz in the New Millennium, at kboo.fm. Each one-hour program focuses on a living jazz artist, putting their work in historical perspective from their earliest recordings to their most recent. The current season features such primetime players 